Broadcasting live from the navel of the U.S., this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Zeba, and I'm joined by my cool girls, Louisa and Taya. This is our second episode of the month talking about femcel films. We'll be covering Gone Girl, directed by David Fincher. Before we get into the film, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram, at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. Mila is off sick this episode, but she'll be back soon. Gone Girl begins with Nick Dunn arriving home on the day of his fifth wedding anniversary to find that his wife, Amy, has mysteriously disappeared from their home, where a physical struggle appears to have taken place in the living room. Despite no dead body appearing as the police investigate, they discover unexplained clues around Nick and Amy's house, leading Nick to be named as the number one suspect in Amy's assumed murder. The case garners a lot of media attention, and Nick becomes a hated public figure. It is quickly revealed that Nick and Amy's marriage have become very strained in recent years, and as more and more evidence conveniently stacks against him, Nick realizes that Amy has deliberately set him up to take the fall for her murder. You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Sure y'all are married. I, I, maybe it's typo. Where are her folks? New York? Yeah. Can they get here in time for this press conference tomorrow? Tomorrow? I have no idea. I haven't talked to them. You haven't called your wife's parents I yet? mean, you can't get a signal in this building. I've been in here talking to you. Well, call them, please, Nick, now. Hi. Should I know my wife's blood type? If you are a longtime listener, if you, you know, follow the Easter eggs, if you know us at all, what types of films we all enjoy you would know that there is a super fan of gone girl on this podcast and it is one taya who manages to find a way to reference gone girl in the most unusual of places and comparisons of films i don't think every movie is like gone girl but if you were to hear taya tell it there's a reason to bring up gone girl (laughs) And I, as the editor of this podcast, along with Mila, have had to cut Gone Girl references from episodes where they need not belong. It is a funny thing that perhaps listeners might not always get because we cut a lot of them because it's not the most relevant reference to make. But it becomes like an inside, it's become an inside joke when recording this podcast. The same way that people ask, what, what is your Roman Empire? I feel like I ask myself, what is your Gone Girl in the way that it is relevant to Taya? And my Gone Girl, we will talk about soon. And it is Ma starring one Octavia Spencer. (laughs) (laughs) This is Taya's moment. Yeah, this is your moment. I think that's a fun question. Let us know on our social media platforms, what film will you shoehorn into every conversation? Because Taya's is Gone Girl. What is your Gone Girl? I would like to hear everybody's responses in the comments. So I first saw this film, I think when I was in college, doing my undergrad. Did you see it in theaters? Mm Mm-hmm. In theaters? Wow. I saw this movie on a date. That is an interesting date movie. And it was the second time he had seen it. He saw Gone Girl, loved Gone Girl, and then invited me to watch Gone Girl. (laughs) I kind of love that. We love a femme cell core king. 
Surprisingly, I didn't see this on a date because I do have very strange date movie choices. That, I was going to say, that's a really tie-coded thing to do as well. I saw it like with some of my friends when I was in college and I was like very into the trailer and I didn't read the book until after I saw the film because I felt like it would ruin it for me. Although I, I feel like the book and the movie are both very good. I think the casting for this movie is so perfect. Like, this is exactly what I imagine being married to Ben Affleck is like. Rosamund Pike is like amazing as Amy. And I think like every single character just works together so well. And like this movie to me, I think people who hate this movie don't want to admit that they like this movie. <laughs> when you hear her do the cool girl monologue, it is so true. that Like you can't help but just like, Oh my god, you're about to be brought to tears. <laughs> <laughs> you can't help but just be like, fuck, that is true. I remember the first time I heard that when I was in college, and I was like, fuck, yeah, this is true. And I think this is a movie where you actually both love and hate the character. Like, you don't necessarily love Amy, but you definitely see where she's coming from. And this is just another reason why you should never marry a man who teaches English at a college. That is canonically the worst occupation for a husband. Like, I can't explain it. But this movie is just, I've been waiting to do this for so long because I feel like this is the monstrous feminine movie. Like, this is the movie where it is, it does not have anything to do with any of the traditional tropes of the monstrous feminine. But like, this is a movie where we really get to see a woman be just absolutely feral and I fucking love it. Not you being into femcel core for just Gone Girl and Gone Girl alone. That's so funny. Yeah, this is where we are. I mean, he dragged her to the navel of this great country (laughs) (laughs) and found himself a newer, younger, bouncier, cool girl. And that is murder. (laughs) The punishment fit the crime. The Monstrous Feminine is an Apple podcast, so please go rate us five stars and leave a review. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Ava Pacheco, who gave us five stars and said, So good! I can't get my friends to watch horror movies with me, and this podcast has filled that void. I feel like I'm part of the conversation in each episode. The hosts are intelligent and funny, and they always have interesting analyses for each movie they watch. That was really nice. Like, intelligent is funny, because I just think of the time we went viral for talking about period blood in a drink in Midsommar, and period blood in spaghetti. And I think, wow, so nice that people got past that enough to see the smarts. Thank you so much. That was really nice. We can be your your horror film buddies if no one else will. I hope that we are great horror movie companions and that you really enjoy all the films that we've done so far. If you have any suggestions for us, feel free to shoot us a DM on Instagram or subscribe to our Patreon because you get to pick our themes if you're a make me. We're so happy to have you as part of the coven. Thank you. Friendly reminder that Taya just said, we are also on Patreon for £1 a month to gain access to our Discord for some chit-chat. For £3 a month, you get to hear a cut discussion from our main episodes, and for £5, you get all that, plus the opportunity to pick our themes, films, and discussion points. Please support us. Any contribution helps. To recap, go listen to our previous episode on Perfect Blue.
we dive a bit more into femcell and like its history but just to do a very very quick recap has a kind of long internet history which originated from incel meaning involuntarily celibate people femcell has since evolved into something that has become more of a superficial social media aesthetic that includes many recent films and media and femcell acts as a kind of mechanism for women to be an ironic perpetuation of the sexist stereotypes that men typically throw against them and it's kind of done with a sort of political apathy and has become the latest consumerist trend like i'm in my sad girl era or my feral women era and gone girl is amongst or is perhaps like the most <laughs> i think iconic like film that has been deemed as like femcell core quote unquote so of course we had to do it and lest we forget this is in the tyler perry cinematic universe Every time I watch this movie, I forget he's in it. And it wallops me every time. It cracks me up. What's he doing there? So we have Tyler Perry playing. Oh, God, what's his name? What's the lawyer's actual name? Tanner Bolt. Okay, yes. That actually reminds me when I was watching this, they were, I was like, Tanner Bolt. They colorblind cast this. They were like, anybody can play Tanner. I would have loved jennifer lopez to play the lawyer in this it would have really been very meta nick dunn and we have amy dunn and they're our married pair we have nick's twin sister and co-owner of the bar Margot. we have amy's parents who wrote the children's book series amazing amy and basically plagiarized her childhood and neil patrick harris another distracting casting choice I mean, to be fair, I feel like he somehow really did work in that role. Like, I bought it. I think I bought everybody. Um, I think everyone gave a very strong performance, actually. But I like this film in the sense that I quite like what it says about this idea of a cool girl, the girl who's performative, who, like, contorts, who has to mold to be this idea of what their partner wants. In this film, it's very much situated within patriarchy, hence the femcell core categorization, and it's situated in heterosexual relationships. But I actually thought that this was like a really universal like commentary. I was like kind of, I know gender and the gender dynamics are obviously playing a huge part in it, but I thought that like sentiment of like how long-term relationships, like damage each other how you can damage each other in a long-term relationship is kind of not specific to like heterosexual couples I thought it was kind of a universal commentary like the kind of opening dialogue where Nick says the primal questions of any marriage what are you thinking how are you feeling what have we done to each other what will we do like obviously it's a dramatized version but in the sense I do feel that that kind of or I see it a lot in like just people's lives, that molding that people do to be a cool girl, whatever their partner, I mean, cool girl, gender neutral, but whatever their partner wants, that molding. I thought that was like the most interesting thing about this film and like something that scares me a lot when I think about long-term relationships and like how people make small compromises to the point where they no longer feel like themselves anymore. That was like kind of the scariest part. So yes, the cool girl monologue is relatable as it's situated or responding to male validation and male attention, but it's also just relatable in the sense of like how everyone, because society places so much pressure on like monogamous romantic relationships, 
that like everyone feels like they must contort themselves to fit a model that might not fit them. And I'm not trying, this is not me coming out as an ethical non-monogamous person, but like, I do think that as a society, it works post Reaganism, post Thatcher era. There was this like turn to focus on like two people and a turn for like towards the individual and like a focus on the nuclear family as opposed to community. And it ends up putting this really toxic pressure on like couples and particularly heterosexual couples because other couples in all shapes and sizes don't really fit the mold here and are excluded legally and, and stuff historically have been. That means that there's so much pressure for that person to be everything they can for each other rather than like leaning on your friends or family to be things for you. And I just think that's really interesting. And that's the kind of undercurrent in this film that I find like a, an appealing commentary. Like I think when they, their whole relationship, right? Like people have called this a postmodern film because of its self-awareness. And I think their whole relationship, they are so self-aware of what it means to be a couple. Like the iconic line that Amy has, which says like, Nick and Amy will be gone, but then they never really existed. You know, that kind of thing. It's like they, she's so aware, like their very first interaction, they like make up a story for each other. And they're both men's and women's magazine writers writing about the ideal performative roles for men and women in relationships and stuff. And Amy always is viewing their relationship with a self-consciousness. She's always experiencing it as both a spectator just as much as she's a participant. And there's that kind of interviewer, even when she says something as simple as like, oh, we're so cute. I could punch us in the face. They very much throughout their relationship resist that they'll end up like other couples. They have this whole like promise, you know, Amy says she won't be like the wives who treat their men like hapless puppies to be trained and broken. And Nick says husbands who treat their wives like eccentric dictators to be appeased and contained. And Amy jumps in with couples whose conversations revolve around to-do lists. And then it's interesting how in their very first fight, Amy says to Nick, like, it's like you're daring me to be someone I don't want to be, the nagging wife, the controlling bitch. I'm not that person. I'm your wife. And to me, it's like just about how... They have this hyper awareness from the very beginning, but because of like the pressures, economic pressures, patriarchal pressures, they cannot help but become the stereotypes. Like it's like their script of their relationship is pre-written because of the conditions in which romantic love and marriage operates. Maybe that's like not necessarily explicitly said, but I think that's the kind of undercurrent. That's really interesting, Louisa. One thing about the cool girl monologue that sticks out to me when I heard it for the first time when I was much younger, is how different I am then versus now. Because I think then I was very much more willing to play a cool girl in relationships with people that I dated. I was much more willing to pretend to like things that they like, even if I didn't like watching football or like eating hot wings and having really shitty beer. But I was much more willing to like do those things like play beer pong, eat things I didn't necessarily want to eat, do things I didn't necessarily want to do. Because like there is this element of like the cool girl being the ultimate compliment that you can receive from a man. And I think that matters so much more when you're younger versus when you're older. Now I really couldn't give two shits. And I absolutely will not do anything that I don't want to do no matter who I'm with. Like Louise has been out with me many times and we'll go for drinks and I'll be like, I'm not drinking because I don't want to. And I think the comparison between Amy and Nick's student who he's having an affair with Andy is the difference that age puts between the perspective of being the cool girl. When you're younger, 
that sort of male validation and the idea that you are performing femininity correctly is something that I think is so much more important or something that you care about so much more because you grow up and go from high school and all these things where like it mattered because you felt isolated if you didn't get those things. If you weren't getting asked to dances or prom or having people have crushes on you, that's a very isolating experience. And I think it continues to carry on as you get older, like even when you're in college where you still desire those things versus once you're older, they don't really matter. Like you are able to find validation in different things and other things matter more. And so I think Part of the comparison of when she's saying he went on and got himself a younger, bouncier, cool girl is he went and found someone who found the idea of being a cool girl to him appealing because Amy no longer desired to be that. She tried, she realized she didn't like it, and she became the person who he was daring her to be, which was the wife who was forced to hound him to do chores because he wanted to sit on the couch and play video games or go chill at his sister in his bar. She was forced to like take on this motherly role because he hadn't grown up. And I think this movie really shows a lot of the fears that I have about marriage in general and commitment, which is that you have fun together when you're young because neither of you are at that place of maturity where you are defined in yourself. But I think people can grow together or grow apart. And this movie is an example of people growing apart. Whereas Amy's character is growing up and wants to talk more about serious things, his character is desiring for her to remain the cool girl that he got with in the beginning, who thinks everything is a joke and wants to laugh about how serious other couples are and wants to go off and do these spontaneous things. But she is like, you have drained me of my money. We have moved to the center of nowhere where I have no friends and my family is not here for you. And I have done everything for you, but you cannot get it together for me. That sort of exhaustion and pressure on a marriage when the other person isn't putting in an equal amount of effort is exhausting. And frankly, why so many people do get divorced. And so I think this film, one reason why it's so relatable is the way that it handles marriage and relationships and dynamics and relationships, because it has to be both people putting something in and not one person financially being responsible and emotionally being responsible and trying to keep you on track to be able to do things like retire and have life insurance. He didn't even read the life insurance policy when she bumped it up, which was why he was able to be framed because he didn't care. And so that just complete lack of like wanting to do the adult things is exhausting. So I was like, I get it, girl. I understand why you would be pissed off. And he, instead of deciding to do the adult thing and divorce her and be the bad guy, he went and got a younger, bouncier, cool girl to perpetuate his needs of having someone think he was cool and fresh and young and to fuck him in random places and go to bars with him instead of just handling his business like a grown man. And that, to me, is very accurate. I agree with everything Taya said, first and foremost. I also think that the age thing is a huge factor and I think I I cool girl less than I did in my younger years and and I will say I'm a person who dates spoiler alert I'm a person who dates out in the world in a big city the other day my friend asked me in regards to somebody who I've been seeing like casually for a while how long have you been cool girling out now and and not like in an accusatory way, just like, yeah, we all do that in the beginning, right? Like you don't, you aren't your most vulnerable. You're not going to nag the person that you just started dating. You're not going to like make all your needs known immediately. You're not going to like demand 
things of people who you just met right like or are seeing in a casual way so like I understand like before you are married or in a committed serious relationship there is an element of performance I think even still right and I had to acknowledge I'm like yeah I have I've been cool girling for like you know three four dates now it's not that I'm like lying it's just that you know you you're trying to like be you're trying to like find your commonalities you're trying to like be accommodating to the person do the activities that they want to do I think that is like a natural way to be in relation to another person where it gets messy patriarchy comes into the picture and expectations so there's like the cool girling you do in your youth and then there's a cool girling you do in a marriage which is like I think in Amy's case because she I mean this is an extreme case and obviously because it's a thriller she's like doing this like big I don't want to call it a scam. That's not really like the right word, but she decides I'm just going to lie to everybody. So she like befriends the neighbor who she needs for her plot. And she like creates this sort of like double life while Nick is at work. The most jarring part to me is when he's like being interrogated by the police and he knows fuck all about her life. Like, I think that is so accurate. Like men, I watch a lot of 90 day fiance. And, like, these men do not care what these women are doing during the day. They leave them at home, go to work, come back, and, like, they don't ask them about their days. They don't know what their hobbies or interests are. They just do not give a shit. Like, it, it, that's not what they're in marriage for. They have a wife to, like, have somebody to fuck and to have somebody to, like, take care of the house and to, like, perfect the image that they want of their lives. And that's so scary. It's very haunting. I think there's like a second part of the age thing where it's like the older you get and the longer you've been in a marriage. I forget how long it's a, it's their fifth anniversary. Like that's still pretty early, honestly, for like y'all to already be resentful of each other and for him to be like slacking in this way. Like I imagine he was nice and romantic and made an effort in the beginning. You're five years in it and he's already like not contributing to the household not I don't know making an effort to be romantic or like intimate with her at all in any way that isn't sexual like that's so disappointing but I I see it all the time like I have friends who are like you know in the early stages of like their marriages and they're like damn he just like gave up like like locked it locked it down had got a wife and then just like okay I'm done mission accomplished tick like the sims achievement thing like we're in this now we're married and it's like that's really that's really scary to be in your own home with like a man who like maybe hates you he hates her that is what i believe in this movie. like he hates her and that's why he's got his little girlfriend and like the beginning of the movie foreshadows the end where he's like i don't know what this bitch is thinking at all we could hate each other and never know it we could love each other and never know it like they're in a home where like neither one can trust the other and i think that's the other like horrific part of it is like damn there's a stranger in your house that's so crazy I don't and I think it's obviously it's exaggerated in this but like marriage can be very scary as an institution and this movie does a great job of exemplifying that because it's not just about relationships it's about like the aspirational aspects of marriage and why you would want to get into a situation with like a big house and children and like the the nice the good careers and the power couple thing like it's all aspirational and it's a nightmare to achieve i agree people might debate that this is not a horror it's a horror to me it's a horror to me 
it's like everything I fear. I mean, obviously, like you said, it's exaggerated, but it is everything I fear about like a long-term relationship or a marriage or like you said, the institution of marriage and stuff and like the inescapability of it where you're like kind of just stuck with somebody. The end of the film paralleling the beginning when Nick says, yes, I love you, but all we did was resent each other and control each other and cause each other pain. And then Amy says, that's marriage. That was like my biggest fear to have like love be seen in, in that way. Like I said, I don't necessarily think that we live in a society that is a healthy breeding ground for happy marriages and marriage itself is an economic arrangement originally. But it does like scare me that this could happen. I also think on the, I wanted to pick up on the topic of how you said like, she's mothering him I thought it's interesting to point out that this happens when his mother starts to her health decline so his literal mother figure I think that's quite interesting you or you've both touched on the younger woman being like kind of replacing her we've talked about replacement as like a fear and like a motivator between female competition and like kind of something that like integral to femcell core I think Amy really embodies that here. It's also interesting. I wanted to highlight a particular bit of dialogue of like, which really to me exemplifies like why men specifically are unfaithful. His sister says like to Nick, Amy once made you happy. And then Nick says, Amy made me better. She made me work to be clever and thoughtful and cultured. Andy let me be. And I think that is like so like, so like just emblematic of like everything that is like the whole what a cool girl is in the sense that like you said both of you that we let things slide early on in relationships and whereas she like pushes him to actually be better and he openly acknowledges that she makes him a better man a better person he would rather not have to be pushed to that limit and do the work so he goes for somebody who's still in the like chill phase who's still so nervous because they don't have the commitment and the security in the relationship yet that they won't vocalize their needs like I said, this is under the sheen of or the, the gloss of a heterosexual relationship, but I think this is a universal thing. I think everyone, like you said, we, you don't express your needs in early on in the relationship. I often feel like the first fight that couples have, like the notorious first fight, is so big because up until that point, no one's necessarily showed the emotions. I know, first one, that I have had lots of like, every time I'm voice noting someone and I'm like fucked up, I'm like, oh my God, this person did this. Obviously, I didn't say this, but this is how I felt. But I can't say it yet because I'll appear crazy. I can't be unhinged this soon. I can't show that I'm angry about things. Equally, I'm not saying that I necessarily should because it would be like super intense. But I wish that we could as a society express our needs earlier on in like a healthy manner rather than be performative. But I don't, I think it's kind of unavoidable for like the start of a relationship. I think for some, it's gonna have to always be somewhat performative. Amy's character is so used to performing that it's kind of effortless for her in the beginning because she's like performed the perfection of childhood for her parents and books. And she has a really hard time separating her identity versus how people perceive her. So she's like the doting perfect daughter for her parents. And we kind of see that it even though she is so perfect to them, like it's still not enough. And they have very high expectations for her. And so it kind of makes sense that she would fall into a relationship with a man who's kind of the exact same way. He's already had an idea of the perfect woman in his head. And when she fits that, everything's fine and dandy. And the moment she doesn't measure up to that, he goes and finds another woman who he rewrite and mold into this perfect person. And obviously, like, Nick isn't the only person who makes mistakes in this movie. But I think there's something quite 
disappointing with the way that he handled Amy and Andy because there, there are several different conversations to me that kind of ring true to the fact that he doesn't actually take Andy seriously at all and she's kind of more of an outlet for him to be quote-unquote and not someone who he's actually considering like leaving his wife or who he's claiming to hate but also when it's like time for him to like make any real commitment doesn't seem like he's actually trying to leave his wife for her he says oh yeah before I was when she told me to go think hard about our marriage and go to the beach I was going to come back and ask her for a divorce If he was unhappy for as long as he's saying he was, it doesn't really make sense that he would drag it out and ask her on the day of their fifth anniversary. He also imitates the same like kiss move with the the flower with Andy as if he's like rewriting the relationship that he had with Amy with Andy. And what like Xavier was saying about there being like a stranger in the house and never knowing the person. When Amy is actually like lying to people and writing her little journal but that scene where she's in the tub and she's like man of my dreams this man could kill me I mean he really did hate her and so she's staging the scene for how she's seen other women discarded and discarding herself in a way to punish him so that she can make sure he's held responsible for her being replaced and discarded and she ups all the things to make herself the most sympathetic like pretending to be pregnant and uh, pretending that he abused her and that she was afraid of this violent man who was terrorizing her in her home. But in a sense, we also do see how cold he is to her and how like he just doesn't really value her as a person or really treat her like she exists or like she matters. And that's not the same thing as abuse, obviously. That's a very different thing. But he already has discarded her in a way that you understand why her character very much feels like he would throw her at the bottom of the ocean with all the other discarded inconvenient women because he got all her money. He moved her to the Midwest because his mom's health was declining. He used her money to open the bar with his sister. And then now that she's inconvenient and she's naggy and she wants to talk about real issues, he wants to go get, he wants to get a divorce and have a younger girlfriend who's not going to ask him to do anything. The way that that is so not far off from what happens in real life. Like, this is very much what men do. I I can see how it fits into the canon of film cell core, but I'm like, this is truly an anti-marriage movie at its core. Because this is everything that I think most people fear about marriage. Like, your partner using you and taking advantage of, like, your love for them to drain you of your money and your time and your energy and then You're moved far away from your family, and that's the only person that you have to rely on. I touched on, like, the meta quality of this film, and you've mentioned that Amy's life, she's used to being written. And I I think I recapped as well earlier how they they have a self-consciousness to their relationship where they're aware of a pre-written story for most, like, straight couples in their lives and how it goes and how they're like, I'm not going to be that. And I think this is definitely a female rage movie in like the canon of Femtocore. I acknowledge that. But I do think that this is one I actually accept because I think a lot of her rage almost comes from herself. I think that there's this gets a lot of debate of like, is this movie feminist? Is this movie misogynist? We can we can debate that. I think it's kind of moot. But I think there's a self-hatred there as well at the fact that she performed and then only to be replaced. And, you know, I think she's so angry because it's so trite almost, you know. She's almost like, oh, of course he's sleeping with one of his students. 
of course he's cheating. Of course I'm now a nagging bitch. Like, of course we've become these people who we said we wouldn't be in this pre-written script. And then she just has an absolute fucking breakdown about it. And is like, my life's always been pre-written. I have no agency. I'm going to take it back or almost be like, well, if we're going to be performances, I'm going to make us become like, I'm going to give the most convincing performance. I'm going to make us embody these roles truly. And that's why she makes him into like, you know, the abusing husband, which he actually does become. He then at the end of the movie bashes her head into the wall after she says that she's pregnant. Like he does get physical with her. She wrote that like mythically in her diaries, but then it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. She equally is completely controlling him and manipulating him. So she, you know, whereas he, she thought that that's how he viewed her. She's like, okay, well, that's how I'll be. So it's like she kind of makes them embody the characters because she realizes the inescapability of it. And that's like kind of where the rage comes from of like, we can't not perform these roles, especially in a marriage. I guess we do have to talk about some of those debates in the sense that it is problematic for there to be like false rape allegations. I'll read a quote actually, because some reviewers put it better than I can. I got this from Wikipedia, these summaries at least, but um, in The Guardian, Joan Smith criticized what she saw as the film's recycling of rape myths, citing research released in 2013, which stated that false allegations of rape in the UK were extremely rare. She wrote, the characters live in a parallel universe where the immediate reaction to a woman who says she's been assaulted is one of chivalrous concern. Tell that to all the victims here and in the US who have had their claims dismissed by skeptical police officers. So like, I do think the movie is a bit problematic for include or not, it is problematic for including like a false rape scene. But then I was thinking about like how Amy as a figure, a white woman who is rich in society, her claim would. I think carry more weight than like the average person reporting to the police. I don't, I think like there is a kind of racial element to this where she has a lot of privilege and like power in society. I think you probably would take it more seriously. Like, I mean, if we just think about why, like historically, like white women going to the police and saying that a black man committed a crime against them like sexual assault or rape or something and they're like no questions asked arrested because of racism society obviously her husband like they're both a white couple so that's not playing out here but I do think the class dynamics and the and the fact that she is this like you know pretty white woman going to with like whose family are already in the media industry anyway would kind of carry some weight but the film is problematic for perpetuating even as it tries to like disclaim like there was another reviewer that says um Alyssa Rosenberg for the Washington Post says that Amy Elliott Dunn is the only fictional character I, I can think of who might accurately be described as simultaneously misogynist and misandrist and in Time magazine Elenia Doctorman wrote that Gone Girl is both a sexist portrayal of a crazy woman but also a feminist manifesto and that's what makes it interesting but it's kind of true how it's like kind of both of these things. Like it is perpetuating a narrative that women falsely accuse men of rape when that is not the case in the reality. But at the same time, her motivations for doing that are deeply relatable. I wouldn't necessarily classify this as a feminist film. I think it's like that age old debate that we have on this podcast of like people want binaries. And just because a film shows a female perspective really well doesn't mean that it's feminist. And this is a good example of that because really it can't be for the reasons just stated but it's still fun to watch um the false rape accusation i forget that that's a part because she also accuses her ex 
I wish we saw more of her previous relationships. That's actually something that I maybe is in the book that I don't know about that like would color that a bit better. But that Amy has a pattern of false rape accusations. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard for me to like digest that. It is what men think when they think that no women are just making this up and they go to such lengths that they're trying to like ruin your fucking life and that that is a tool or like a weapon that women can use. It is something that does not sit well with me. But she has a pattern of this. It's like really strange. That is when I stop empathizing with her. And when we talked about on the last episode, when we talked about Perfect Blue, how fem cells have this toxic bent to the characters that they idolize. And I think idolize and feel that their actions are justified. That is where I need to start like interrogating interpretations of films, right? Like we talked about this with American Psycho too, where it's like, that character is idolized because of a gross misinterpretation of the intention of the film. This is a little bit similar. The cool girl monologue, you're right, is universal and something that we can all feel like genuinely frustrated with without idolizing Amy as a character, right? Like she is toxic. She is manipulative. We need to acknowledge those things. We can relate to her struggle without relating to her methods. Yeah. As someone who really likes this film, I think that one one of the only aspects that I do have trouble with is the false accusations and how it's implied it's a pattern, but it's like a as a way to punish the men. And Nick is like talking to her ex and saying like the guy's like, Oh, she ruined my life and ta da 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 ta and that angle, look at how horrible this woman is. She lied about abuse and she killed someone and she lied about multiple women raping her all for revenge because they didn't want her anymore. It's something that I think almost is incelly. It's very much what I think men dismiss sexual assault allegations as being like revenge or wanting to ruin a man's career or get back in him just because he didn't want you or something like that. So I think that being used in this film for the exact reason is probably not the best idea. But I kind of agree with Louisa where it's like, this film is like both somehow misogynist in ways and feminist in ways. It's just, it doesn't really fit on the binary of either because some of the aspects are deeply problematic and kind of misogynistic, like the false accusations. And some of them like the cool girl monologue is quite relatable. I don't think it's Amy's character that people find relatable. I think it's more so the scenario that she finds herself in, the marriage, the way that Nick behaves, being cheated on, being replaced, that sort of thing is an experience that's more relatable. Or as they were saying, like playing the cool girl early on in relationships or when you're younger because you want people to like you, that sort of thing is quite relatable to the female experience. Or I mean, in general, it's just in dating culture. But I don't think her character is like portrayed in a way that's explicitly sympathetic. I think you understand her motivations and that makes the film make more sense than if it just seemed like she was going batshit for no reason. I understand her reasoning, but I don't think the actions were the best way to do it. I'm not going to give a pass for having a false rape, two false rape allegations in there and false domestic abuse allegations in there as well. Eliana Doctorman, the Time Reviewers, again said that Amy is a men's rights advocate's worst nightmare. But I guess in this context that this is 
Amy is fulfilling a pre-written role that she perceives like a patriarchal society and her marriage to have written for her. Her almost fulfilling what a men's rights advocate, like nightmare of a woman would be in the same way that her husband thinks he's like this nagging shrew is in keeping with like, like her resignation towards performing in the worst way what she thinks womanhood is in the eyes of men. That being said, still don't think it should be there. I think it could have probably done it without that. Relevant to this conversation, uh, again, in the Time article, they give more of a context to the book where they say that Nick, he goes to like strip clubs on their third wedding anniversary and he cheats and he um, struggles with an urge to commit violent acts against any woman who disagrees with him. He has a stupid bitch that he mumbles, apparently, um, and that's largely missing from the movie. This reviewer, Dr. Min, only points out at the end that we only really see Nick's, like, maybe inherent sexism properly, A, with his girlfriend, that's true, we've, we've talked about that, but also when he slams her head in the wall at the end after she's pregnant, and also when he, like, calls her a bitch. Obviously, you have reasons for doing that, and that he knows that he's, she set him up for taking the fall for his murder, but also he doesn't know, no. And she comes home in blood. So it is kind of like a whoa reaction. Amy's response does seem more extreme without those things that he's like been previously had like violent impulses and that he he seems like he was more of a misogynist. Like, but maybe I don't know. I think the subtlety is also important. Like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people do finish this movie feeling bad for him in the end. And maybe that maybe that means that his like his being a ship bag was maybe too subtle i don't know like we said we're not meant to aspire to amy we're just meant to feel we can understand her plight in this and sometimes him, him just being shitty in the way that like a lot of men are shitty like the average man is shitty is kind of like more impactful to me than if he was like more overtly misogynistic as he is in the book the cool girl speech is one of the crucial things it's different in the book the book was like pretty much just as impactful but the one for the movie is like cut down and it's more concise, I guess. So I'll just read the one from the book. Men always say that as the defining compliment, don't they? She's a cool girl. That part is the same. Being the cruel girl means I'm a hot, brilliant, funny woman who adores football, poker, dirty jokes, burping, who plays video games, drinks cheap beer, loves threesomes and anal sex, and jams hot dogs and hamburgers into her mouth like she's hosting the world's biggest culinary gangbang while somehow maintaining a size two. Cool girls above all are hot. Hot and understanding. Cool girls never get angry. They only smile in a chagrin-loving manner and let their man do whatever they want. Go ahead, shit on me. I don't mind. I'm the cool girl. Men actually think this girl exists. Maybe they're fooled because so many women are willing to pretend to be this girl. For a long time, cool girl offended me. I used to see men, friends, co-workers, strangers giddy over these awful pretender women and I want to sit them down and calmly say, you are not dating a woman, you are dating a woman who has watched too many movies written by socially awkward men who like to believe this kind of woman exists and might kiss them. I'd want to grab the poor guy by his levels or his messenger bag and say that the bitch doesn't really love chili dogs that much, no one loves chili dogs that much, and the cool girls are even more pathetic. They're not even pretending to be the woman they want to be. They're pretending to be the woman a man wants them to be. Oh, and if you're not a cool girl, I beg you not to believe that your man doesn't want the cool girl. It may be a slightly different version. Maybe he's a vegetarian. So cool girl loves Satan and is great with dogs. Or maybe he's a hipster artist. So cool girl is a tattooed, bespectacled nerd who loves comics. There are variations to the window dressing, but believe me, he wants cool girl. 
is basically the girl who likes every fucking thing he likes and doesn't ever complain. How do you know you're not the cool girl? Because he says things like, I like strong women. If he says that to you, he will at some point fuck someone else because I love strong women is code for I hate strong women. That's where the femme cell thing comes in because like you are blaming other women pretending for too long as the justification for like why men believe that the cool girl exists. Like if you did not, if you weren't playing in your relationship i wouldn't have to play in mine i think there's undercurrents of that in her though because like i said i think she has an intense annoyance that she did perform it at herself so i think she's in at least in the film i th- I thought it did come across that she's annoyed that she played that role to begin with but she did it for a, like a little while but like when she was doing cool girl volume two after she had been the nagging wife she was doing it to manipulate him like with the intent of like ruining his life which is a different intent than getting him to love you i'll admit i was willing to try parts and i was kind of like almost being embarrassed that you were willing to do that for someone i mean i think we all do it so i think the reason why it was cut from the book to the movie is mainly because the one in the book is like a bit too cutting towards other women and i don't think it's false but i don't think the fault is with women for pretending to be the cool girl because i think that's what society rewards you for being it's not even necessarily just like pretending like poker and football and beer and all of that things. I think it's also like when someone says like they don't want anything serious and then expecting you to be like, I'm perfectly fine with whatever you want. That sort of thing. Just kill me. Just kill me dead, Taya. Jesus right. Christ. Seriously, that felt like a pointed attack. The cool girlness of it is like thinking you can convince them to love you by performing exactly what they want you to do. Like, oh, like maybe I can change that. Okay, you don't know. <laughs> I had a friend of a friend who did it right, and now they're married. So I think most most likely we're always the rule and not the exception. But I mean, we've all done that type of thing. So I think the cool girl speech in the book is a bit too cutting because it like takes away the relatability and it just brings out shame and it makes you feel really bad. <laughs> yeah. That was so harsh. I was like, damn, all right, I'm sorry. Also wanting to like warn men that women are pretending to be this thing in order to get them to love them is also something because I'm like, I think people genuinely still have this type of thing. Like there's the people who are like, I never wear makeup. And I just, I feel like people pretend to be different people when they wear makeup. Like there's so many different variations of like this wanting to warn men about other women pretending to be something for them and not really being real. And it's never the frustration of what drives women to behave this way and to perform or to alter their looks, which is overwhelmingly like patriarchal stress. And in this film, I think the reformed cool girl speech kind of looks more at the patriarchal causes and like the misogyny versus the one in the book. While it is still well written, Gillian Flynn is like an incredible writer. There's also like an air to it of like blaming other women for it. And I don't think it's like a a fault with women for doing that. I think it's something that like we're trained to do from the time we're little. In an interview, a 2013 interview with Time Out magazine writer Novid Parsi, they described the end of the novel as polarizing and Flynn, Jillian Flynn, explained that she wanted the novel to counter the notion that women are naturally good and to show that women are just as violently minded as men are. And in a 2014 interview, Flynn admitted that the critical gender-related response to Defector, she said, I had about 24 hours where I hovered under my covers and was like, I killed feminism. What did I do that? Rats. I didn't mean to do that. 
And then I quickly kind of felt comfortable with what I had written. And I think that's an interesting, <laughs> I mean, it's certainly a take to say that's why you wrote like Amy in the way you did. I, I think I'm just going to like divorce that loaded word here, but I'm going to divorce that like motivation from like what I think is relatable about Amy's motivations in the film. I don't think that women are as naturally violently minded as men are. I think that patriarchy has warped violence in a very specific way. Obviously, every human has capacity for violence. That's true. Um, But I'm not like, I don't think that the aim should be showing how women can perform or perform violence or commit violent acts in the same way men can. Because I don't think that it's always the same way. I think it's specific because of gender dynamics, racial dynamics, insert whatever dynamic. I think that does complicate our viewing of it. But like I said, I don't view it as a feminist film. I view it as like an intriguing film about a female. I think I would, so like feminist misogynist is kind of a moot point to me. You mentioned that you think it's very mon femi. I just want to hear if there's anything more tangible because I don't know if I can think of anything concretely. This one was mon femi, like a very untraditional way to me. Like I think Amy has like a little bit of so many of the the traditional mon femme archetypes within her. Like she's a bit of a castratiste. She's kind of like castrating him in the sense of like she's the person who has the control in the relationships and she further gains the control by creating this whole like fake mountain death murder plot. And she's so smart about it. Like she uses the womb as a means to further gain control and public opinion by making sure that people felt sorry for her. But she's also kind of like a witch in a way because she's really making all this, this magic happen. Kind of how someone would call someone a witch in like a derogatory way. She has like all these things set into place like that kind of feels like a whole spell. She has so many of the mom things, but also just being like a monstrous woman, quote unquote. I want to go back to the female castatrice thing because it's like, I think obviously we don't, famously what we've been talking about is we don't have a, like a rape revenge sequence because the assault was, that is something that she framed, but she is emasculating him and like, and she's kind of, it's, it's kind of a comment on like how men view women in marriage as always emasculating them like always a kind of metaphorical castration but it's exaggerated by their dynamic men love to be like i can't wait to tell i hate my wife jokes i can't wait for that shit i mean to make matters worse it's also that i love my wife guys are so much worse they somehow like always cheat but it's even worse because it's unexpected I think with Nick and Amy, what I found quite insidious is that he claims that he was the one who wants children, you know, as well. And to be fair, I don't, I can't remember if the cheating happened before or after that dynamic, or maybe it's all kind of concurrent, but it's like insane to me because he's like kind of not helping her around the house. And then at the same time, he's like, but I want kids. And then he's like angry that she wouldn't perform that role and stuff. So I think all of that is just very insidious. In summary, I guess it earns Ty's spot as a landmark piece of media for us the girls love gone girl thank you for listening to the monstrous feminine be sure to follow us on instagram soundcloud and spotify at the monstrous feminine podcast and on twitter at the monfem pod subscribe to our youtube channel rate and review us on apple Podcasts and spotify and follow us on tiktok at the monstrous feminine pod for podcast clips and more fun 
Brooms Up, Witches Out. <laughs>